Good evening. It's a joy to be here tonight. Our text is John, uh, Joshua chapter 10. Next week on Sunday morning, Leslie and I will have a chance to share more about our family and introduce ourselves to you. So look forward to the personal side next week. Uh, tonight, please suffice it to say, we are very thankful for how warmly you have welcomed us. It's a joy to be here and partner in the gospel with you here tonight. Joshua chapter 10, as you're reminded, going through Joshua in the evenings, uh, this great work of God whereby he's promised his people would be in the promised land. They would have to go in and conquer it. And we've seen God come with, with the death of Moses and then raise up Joshua. Uh, says to him, Joshua 1, chapter 9, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord is with you wherever you go. This, this reality in the book of Joshua, this historical book of truth, is also a book about the character of our God. We learn about him here, and we learn what a life of faith looks like in a very practical way. Be strong and courageous. Here's the task at hand. Go, trusting, not in your own strength, but the Lord is with us wherever we go. And so with that, the book is off and running. Spies are sent in the land. They've taken Jericho. They've said the setback of the loss, uh, the defeat at Ai. They renewed their covenant with their God. They have been deceived by the Gibeonites. Or as last week we saw from Chris Williams, the God is like a divine warrior fighting on their behalf. And with that, we come to the end of Joshua chapter 10, watching the people of God seek to follow after their God with all these enemies before them in southern Canaan. And we come to this encouraging and yet a bit confusing passage at the very end. Five times in 16 verses, you'll hear the phrase, devoted to destruction, a phrase which in our minds causes a certain amount of curiosity and maybe concern about the justice of this God whom we're seeking to follow after. How could it be that God would ordain something like we find here in Joshua chapter 10? May the Lord bless us the reading and the preaching of his holy word, the inspired and infallible word of God, which is indeed our only rule of faith and practice. Let's hear Joshua 10, beginning in verse 28. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did it to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and the king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to the king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege on it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as the Lord, as he had done in Libna. Then Haran, king of Gezer, Gezer, came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day 
and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done in Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it. And they captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king and its town and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Deber and fought against it. And he captured it with his king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and to its king, so he did to Deber and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck then them from Kadesh, Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our great desire is to see you and to understand you well, our great God and Savior. We pray even tonight you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of who you are, our great God and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember on Memorial Day, starting to watch a series through World War II done in color. They take those old videos in black and white and uh, bring them up to, to date, as it were. So you can not only hear about the great World War II and Germany and Italy and Japan, how those Axis powers took all that extra land, but how in God's kindness, democracy wins out and the allied powers go in and take back Europe, and take back Japan realizing that moment of what war is a bit like, uh, we, most of us, will never, I pray, never see such harsh realities in our own day, but it's happened even in the lifetime of some, even here. We, we understand it's cruel and hard. That idea that when the, the forces storm the beaches at Normandy, they begin to take back Europe, we realize sometimes large swaths of land are regained almost in a day. Other times it's city block by city block as those forces make their way from Normandy through France and Holland, Germany, all the way back to Berlin. This battle after battle, this victory after victory, this great sacrifice that had to be made so that they could fight back those Axis powers. In my mind, it's something of the scene here in Joshua chapter 10 of course, not with airplanes and missiles, but with the edge of the sword, hand-to-hand contact all the way through the brutality of that. And yet the necessity, God had said, go and take the promised land. And so here we find Joshua seeking to be strong and courageous, not frightened or dismayed, for the Lord their God was with them. And we find here in this chapter, the end of Joshua chapter 10, about 16 verses Great victory after great victory. We're reminded here of the power of our God to make great advances here in short seasons. And we should understand our God is like this. 
mighty and strong, able to save, able to defend us from all his and our enemies, able to make great advances. Jesus reminds us in Mark chapter 4, the kingdom doesn't always advance this fast. The kingdom of God is like a, a sower, a farmer sowing seed, and he goes to bed not understanding how the seed sprouts, but yet first the blade, and then the ear, and then the grain, and then they take the harvest. We understand the, the advance of the kingdom of God in the power and sovereignty of God. Sometimes it's fast. Sometimes it's extremely slow, routine, and mundane. It advances moment by moment and family by family. My point is simply this. We behold the power of our God in extraordinary moments like Joshua 10 and in ordinary moments like your own home and on Lord's days in and out where we gather and the kingdom is growing in our own hearts. This is our God at work. But here in Joshua chapter 10, it's fast. It's mighty, it's powerful, it's victory after victory. It's a bit triumphant as we find one town after another town, one king after another king falling at the hands of God and his people. As we think of these victories tonight, simply we'll make two observations for us. The first is this, this victory in Joshua chapter 10 is a partnership between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Notice this partnership. You see it explicitly in verses 29 and 30. Verse 29 says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Akita to Libna and fought against Libna. So verse 29, responsibility of man. Joshua, go take the land. What are they doing? The very thing God told them to do. Now verse 30 says, And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of of Israel. God gave the victory, and yet they were the ones who were fighting. This sovereignty of God and responsibility of man laid side by side without further explanation, just laid them there unashamedly. And I suggest to you that we, we must keep both those tracks in mind. We are to do all that God has called us to do faithfully with all the strength and might that God has given to us. And yet we understand if God doesn't give the victory, it won't happen. They're to be like, like railroad tracks, like the tracks over here on 6th Street, which you are very familiar with. The train runs every Sunday, right? I learned this week it runs all week long as well. And there's these tracks. Imagine a train on those, both those tracks. When is a train in trouble? The train's in trouble when it's only on one track and not the other. It's firmly on both of those. It can keep its load. It can keep the weight and keep on hauling as it's intended to do. But put it on one track without the other, the train is in trouble. And the same for you and I. This wedding, this partnership between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, we should lay them in our minds like train tracks. Joshua had to go to war. They'll never conquer the southern half of Canaan if Joshua doesn't go to battle. And if God doesn't give the victory, they'll never win the southern half of Canaan. It has to both happen. Now, in our minds, we love to press and press. Where does the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God meet? How do those things work? And there's just a sense in which we'll never fully understand how all that works this side of heaven. But we see both tracks. Joshua had to go into battle. And God 
had to give the victory. And this is crucial for all of your life, for your work life, your family life. It's certainly true for ministry. How will we at First Prize Augusta advance the cause of Christ? It's a partnership between the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. We can't merely sit back and say, God, will you do this great work? We need to pray. If he doesn't do the great work, it never happens. But we also understand we must roll up our sleeves. We must invest time and treasure and talent. We must, as Joshua did, we must go into battle, fighting the battles that God has put before us. And yet, always in the confidence that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Psalm 127.1. We understand God is the one who has to give the victory. And so it is here. They would have never won had Joshua not gone in. But if God didn't go with them, they would have never won. It's both true at the same time. This wedding, this partnership between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, all our lives fit in that tension. And we do our part trusting that God, as we plant and as we water, we trust that God and God alone would give the increase. We see that in Joshua 10, this partnership between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But we also notice here, secondly, uh, in this idea that we will, uh, the, the, this phrase repeated five times, devoted to destruction. The victory here is this partnership between God and man, but the victory is also with this phrase, devoted to destruction. It's verse 28, it's verse 37, it's verse 38, it's verse 39, it's verse 40. We'll notice it just one time, it's five times there. Let me read verse 28, just to set one occasion before our minds again. Verse 28, as for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and his king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. He did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So with, with great clarity here, we find there were no survivors. Not a single survivor. He devoted to destruction the city, the king, and all that were there. He left none remaining. So in our minds, it's very clear there weren't some measure of mercy and some measure of kindness here. He devoted every single one to destruction. In our own modern-day just war theory, the idea is that we're going to protect civilians. We're going to limit civilian casualties as much as possible. But here in Joshua chapter 10, there's no such mercy. Devoted to destruction is the word and the call of the day. And we find it in verse 28, 35, 37, 39, and 45 occasions, one right after the other. In our minds, especially in this current day where we understand this, this idea of being kind and compassionate, and perhaps some only thinking of kindness and compassion, we think of the trouble this might present to us in Joshua chapter 10. Who would order such a thing as that every man and woman and child and cattle would be killed? What kind of God would ordain such a thing? It would be easy for us. If you are reading through your Bible in a year, you've come to Joshua chapter 10, and you say, That's, it's a bit too much for me. Where's the God of love rather than the God of such wrath and judgment? And yet we find it here. We find it with great clarity 
And therefore, we seek to jump in and understand it. Let me simply encourage you. There's no injustice here. There's no God who's like the parent of a four-year-old who's just lost it, right? And overbears on their children. This is the same God of the Old and New Testament, acting perfectly consistent with his character. We realize, Leslie and I did a few weeks ago, we put our house for sale in Pooler, and our real estate agent hires a professional photographer to come in and take pictures. And we were a bit concerned, there's a part of the yard that doesn't look as good as it should, and carpet's a bit old. And the, the photographer said, listen, in my pictures, the grass is always green and the sky is always blue. I remember looking at the pictures thinking, these are, these are amazing. This, this house, it looks a little bit like my living room, but it's so much bigger. It's kind of like my bedroom, but so much bigger. But Leslie saw the pictures and she said, I would, I would buy that house. <laughs> I told her to make me an offer. I would sell it to her. And yet we realize, don't we, if, we, if it's our house, our pictures, you realize if you zoom in a little bit, and you look by the back door, just to the right of the door, you'll see where our dog Lucy had almost scratched through the sheetrock and tore off the paint. And where we used to sit in front of the TV and spill a drink or two and stain the carpet. I think Joshua tends a bit like that. If you, if you zoom out for a moment, here is our great God giving victory after victory. And we say, what a mighty God he is. And then you zoom in a little bit. Every man, every woman killed. The picture as you zoom in is not as pleasant as a zoom out kind of picture. And we might be cautious. We might be a bit worried. Who is this God? Can I trust this God in my life? Which brings us to three observations about this devoted to destruction. I want you to have your hands around it just a bit. The word here is harem. We write it in English, H-E-R-E-M, harem. It's the idea of being devoted to be destroyed. Every man, woman, child, cattle, everything that has breath in it is to be destroyed. It was the plan of God. Even before they got into the promised land, God said this is what to be, to, is to happen. And we understand three clear things about this concept of harem. The first is this. This is not a standing order against every enemy of God. Now, this is not a standing order every enemy in every day. Instead, this is a limited order for a limited season as the people of God go in the promised land. And so we understand here clearly from Deuteronomy chapter 7, I want you to hear the command, verse 1 and 2, very limited in its scope and its timing. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them or show no mercy to them. There's the there's the command, Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. Show them no mercy, destroy them, but it's a limited order. These folks that listed here in this particular area, they're the ones, you can't make a covenant with them, you can't enslave them and use them, 
You can't make any kind of treaty with them. You are to kill them, this particular group, and them, and them alone. A standing, limited order. So that in our minds, as we think about this God, who's clearing out the promised land, preparing it for the people of God to be growing in their faith and following after their God, we must understand this is not for you and I today. In fact, the standing order for you and I is not to kill our enemies, but it's to love our enemies. We can't grab this concept and say, okay, this is the way we operate. This is obey the gospel or die. This is not the Islamic Mujahideen that says this is the standing order for all seasons. We kill our enemies. No, we, we love our enemies. We understand very clearly in the gospel that we were once aliens and strangers from God. We were once at enmity with God. We were the enemies of God. And God befriended us in the gospel. We, we understand as recipients of the grace of God, former enemies of God, we hold out the beauty of the gospel to them and love them and are patient and long-suffering with them. We, we care for others because the gospel came freely to us. We give it freely even to those who are now the enemies of God. But for a season... In Joshua, the book of Joshua here, specifically in Joshua chapter 10, there's a standing order. You are to kill them, these seven nations in particular. So one, limited order in its scope. The second thing to observe about this is this is divine punishment for sins committed. That's crucial. This is divine punishment for sins committed. This is not God saying because of the their ethnicity, we're going to kill them. Because of their nationality, we're going to kill them. Because of the color of their skin, we're going to kill them. No, this is sins committed that God says, I'll punish them for those specific sins. In fact, the same idea in Joshua chapter 10 is found in Joshua chapter 6. And when D.T. House preached on Joshua chapter 6, he drew a straight line from Joshua 6 verse 18 back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham. He says, one day you and your descendants will be inhabitants of the promised land, but not yet. And you recall why. The idea was this, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is crucial. This is a God of justice. He's not blown off the handle just mad. He's not, he's not uh, attacking them for who they are. It's for sins committed. Imagine it's like a cup. And so uh, if you have young kids, you realize at certain times you, they have filled up your cup and you're ready to just bring justice. But in the perfect righteousness of God, God says, I see these nations. I understand their immorality and their idolatry. I understand they sacrifice children. And, and at a certain point, I'll be filled with my anger and the day will be over. And so the very same thing God will do with all humanity at the very end of time, he simply fast-forwards for this particular group and says, when the sin of the Amorites is complete, you'll come in the promised land, and judgment will be administered through the servant Joshua and his people. This is that divine date moved up for sins committed because of their actions, and therefore, it's the justice of God. Now keep in mind, between Genesis chapter 15 and Joshua chapter 10, you've got hundreds and hundreds of years. The God in his kindness 
has been patient with these folks. God in his kindness has been long-suffering. They could have repented at any moment in time, and yet they had not. And so a God of patience and long-suffering at a moment says, it's too much, and justice falls in Joshua chapter 10. It's the kindness of our God, even here as we see the justice of our God. So number one, limited in scope. Number two, for sins committed. And number three, keep in mind the justice of God is a beautiful attribute. It's beautiful. Last Sunday night, as we did the catechism before tonight, who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and his being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. As you think about the attributes of God, there's some that we just pause and praise our God. His goodness, praise be to God for his goodness. Praise be to God for his power. But oftentimes, we we might skip over the justice of God, not, not praise be to God for his justice. It's that attribute which we tend to perhaps move past at times. And yet, every heart in this room longs for justice when they see injustice. Remember watching through that series, and you, when the Allied forces come into Germany and they find those concentration camps where millions of Jews are being killed, you watch that and you realize, this is wrong. It must be put right. Our hearts beat that way because of the God of justice and whose image we're made. And we long for that. And you celebrate to some degree when the Nuremberg trials come at the end and some of them are held accountable for their sins. We think, that's right. It should have happened that way. They should have paid for their sins. We understand the rightness of that. Or when you've been sinned against, You've been harmed in some ways. Sometimes people avoid earthly consequences, and yet we understand that great day is coming, that day of judgment, where the judge of all the earth will administer justice. Our, our hearts long for that. And we would have to admit there's some measure in which we say that's, that's beautiful, a God of justice coming to bear his justice, sometimes in time, sometimes at the end of time, but all things that are wrong will be made right. We love that and find that to be beautiful. The Bible makes it very clear. Our God created all things, owns all things, rules all things, and always does so justly, always in his righteousness. I think of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 in Sodom and Gomorrah occasion. He says rhetorically, will not the God of all the earth do what is just? Will not the God of all the earth do what is right? The answer is, of course, yes, he'll do that. Or the opposite of Paul in Romans chapter 9, where he, they, where he argues, is there any injustice on the part of God? And he says, by, by no means. There's no injustice in God. And so we take these realities, and we come back to the book of Joshua. Is God doing right? Is God doing just? And the answer is yes. This is the justice of God, which every man deserves being brought upon these particular people at this particular time. Moses will cry out, Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without inequity, just and upright is he. And so we should come, I would urge you, to Joshua chapter 10 and say, boy, this seems a bit brutal. 
Every man, every woman, every child, every cattle, everything that has life, none left remaining. But what do I know about God? He's just in all his ways. He's righteous in all his doings. And therefore, we affirm this devoted to destruction, to destruction, limited in scope, for sins committed, but by a God who is perfectly just. And as we pause there, end there, we, we must make one more step and say, what about us? What do we deserve? I think you read through Joshua chapter 10 and you say, who am I in the text, right? I'm learning about my God. I'm also learning about the life of faith. And I, I might most easily say, well, I'm with Joshua and his people. I'm the one fighting the battle. But we must realize that the justice of God was the only attribute he had. The justice would demand that, that beside my name, it should read John Fender, devoted to destruction. And if it would have been that way, God would have been perfectly just, perfectly right for his justice to fall upon me even now. John Fender, devoted to destruction. Leslie Fender, devoted to destruction. But we realize in the gospel what happens is not the justice of God is set aside, but the justice of God is satisfied. God made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us that we might be reconciled to our God. We realize here that even in Joshua chapter 10, where the justice of God falls, in the gospel, the justice of God falls as well, but not upon sinners like us, but upon his son, Jesus Christ. So that even now, those who run to him can be not devoted to destruction, but can be justified by grace. So that now, in the kindness of God, not that his justice is removed, but justice is satisfied, my name bears that. Not because I've earned it, not because I've deserved it, but because God is a God of grace. An unmerited favor. I, I certainly could have been one of these people and one of these nations and rightfully deserved all the punishment. But in the gospel, we have a protection. We have a redeemer. We have the propitiation for our sins. So the wrath of God doesn't have to fall upon me, because it, but instead it fell upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true for my account. It's true for all those who run to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. There is our protection. That day of judgment from Joshua chapter 10, by which we'll all stand before God upon the great day when Christ returns. Oh, there's protection. There's the good news of the gospel available to all who repent and believe. My encouragement to you tonight would be trust this God of justice and run to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your own protection. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you that even in a hard passage there is great truth and grace. May our hearts never trust in our own righteousness. May our hearts never think lightly of the justice of God. May we understand well what every man deserves. The wages of sin indeed is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We praise you tonight for your justice and for your grace and pray that your word would shape us from this day forward and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.